the Anesthesia Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the live Twitter broadcast from Anesthesia. I'm Sheila Maitra, Professor of Anesthesia and Intensive Care, working at the Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai, India. I'm also one of the associate editors of uh, Anesthesia. Now, despite the acknowledged injustice and the widespread existence of the so-called parachute research studies that are conducted in low-middle-income countries by researchers from the high-middle-income countries, there really is no uh, pragmatic guidance on how academic journals uh, should evaluate these manuscripts or, for that matter, even challenge this practice. And today we're going to discuss an article that's just been published uh, online in Anesthesia on a consensus statement on measures to promote equitable authorship in the publication of research from international partnerships. And this paper addresses a very important yet troubling issues which has, have both moral and ethical uh, undertones. And I'm very happy uh, that joining us today from the authorship group is Ben Morton. Uh, ben Morton is the first author of the paper. He's a senior clinical uh, lecturer uh, in the Liverpool School of uh, Tropical Medicine uh, from the UK. We also have Shea uh, Abimbola, and he is a senior lecturer from the University of Sydney in Australia. Uh, we have Refiloe uh, Masakela. She's an associate professor. She's also head of the Department of Pediatrics and Child Health uh, from uh, Durban, South Africa. And we have Angela Obasi, uh, who is the corresponding author of this paper. She's a senior clinical uh, lecturer, uh, also in the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine in the UK. So uh, welcome everyone. First, uh, over to you, Ben. I'd like you to give a, a brief overview of this uh, project and what made you really want to do this? And how did you form uh, this group? Because I think that's very important when you form, uh, when you draft consensus statements. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I work as an editor uh, with Anesthesia. Um, and unfortunately, we've, we've received a number of submissions indicative really of parachute research. And as a group of editors, um, we had to take a binary position of whether to accept or reject these. And really, obviously, we took the, the we took the reject option, um, and it was really difficult to try to one understand um, and kind of assess um, um, manuscript submissions for the risk of parachute research. We're also really keen to kind of promote um, research, kind of equitable partnerships between people working uh, from high income and low income. Um, uh, countries. And so um, uh, having rejected um, an article, um, my editor-in-chief asked actually, he said, well, can, we need to be able to codify this. So how we need to be able to more systematically assess um, manuscripts so that we can make um, informed uh, decisions about whether to um, to accept such manuscripts, um, where, where there's this potential risk. Um, and so initially we, we thought we'd start off as an editorial, but as, as the reading progressed um, and it became apparent that there really wasn't a, um, a, a kind of strong guidance or, or, or kind of framework through which one can assess uh, papers, um, we kind of pivoted and decided that moving towards a consensus statement or of guidance would be a useful thing for our journal, certainly, but potentially for others. 
And so um, then started the, the real work of trying to put together the group. Um, um, and um, obviously I work with Angela at Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and Angela's very prominent in this space. Uh, and so we work together really to, um, to kind of put together in a hopefully in a systematic way, a, a group of authors who um, are, are broadly representative of um, in this space and so we concentrated in Africa um, obviously the majority of low-income countries unfortunately still are in Africa uh, and so we wanted to include um, researchers and editors who uh, work in Africa um, and we also wanted to have um, broad representation of kind of senior more junior researchers um, and also thinking about gender balance as well and so that, that's that's how we approach this. Great, wonderful to have, uh, you know, first of its kind consensus statements uh, on this very important issues. Just to set the stage, why do you think high income researchers from high income countries uh, want to collaborate with uh, researchers from low income countries? Or rather, why would someone from a low income country want to collaborate with a researcher from a high income country? Any of you could take this. Okay, um, thank you so much. I think uh, from a perspective of somebody who's working in a low-income country, of course, collaboration um, brings teamwork, brings strengths, and we have lots of, we can collaborate and get people to bring different resources to the table. But um, unfortunately, in the context where we're speaking about um, parasite research, the challenge there is that um, there's power imbalances, usually low-middle-income countries, the researchers have fewer resources, um, and of course, having fewer resources means that there's a, an imbalance in power. And most of the time, the funding is usually linked to a research question, which is um, normally formulated outside of the context of low middle income country. And the uh, players in, in this uh, ecosystem are therefore uh, quite unequal so-called partners. Um, they have a partnership, but it's an, a partnership of inequality. Um, so, of course, we all want to collaborate, we want to network, we want to work together. There's strength in working together and collaborating. But unfortunately, in some instances, this is an, an equal relationship. Thank you. So uh, how do you think, I mean, how are these consensus statements different from other existing guidelines? Can I pitch in on that? Yeah, please. So, so historically, um, there hasn't been an official guideline formalized by any journal or any group, as it were, um, about parachute research. I know of two journals that have come out with public statements that they will not publish any manuscript um, that does not include a local author. So Lancet Global Health has that. Um, and um, Tropical Medicine and International Health. So those are journals in my area of global health. Both of them are officially, have officially stated that they won't publish any such manuscript. Um, so in my own practice, I'm editor-in-chief of BMJ Global Health. In my own practice, um, I, along with my associate editors, generally do not publish any manuscript from, from an international partnership without local author. In fact, we go a few steps further and check where the local authors are placed on a manuscript. Um, so we also have a, a strong bias for local authors being first 
or last or corresponding author. But these are generally sort of single journal policies, very often informal policies. Um, and this, this consensus statement is an opportunity to bring these discussions to the open, make these um, informal policies formal. Um, and a big, a big reason for that, or a big uh, benefit of that, is that it starts to hopefully shape how people think within the community of researchers. So it's, it's one thing for journals to make decisions at the end of the day. It's another to be aware that the journal will make that decision at the end of the day. And that awareness itself starts to change, we hope, um, how people then approach their work, how they go about designing or even initiating partnerships, and being very conscious of what they do at every stage of the partnership, knowing that at some point at the end of this process, which is the publication point, um, they would need to make some explanation or some justification or some clarification. So, 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 so you know, it's one thing to have informal policies, it's another to have a formal policy that people can, that can guide thinking and practice in the field. Right, thank you so much. So uh, from the beginning, we've been talking about a lot about uh, parachute research or the helicopter research. So uh, what is this parachute research? And, uh, you know, why is it a problem? Perhaps, mm -hmm. Trefilme, you can tell us. Well, basically, parachute research is where, um, you know, you have uh, someone coming from a high-income country coming to uh, perform research in a low-income country setting and um, really not acknowledging the, the players in that um, low middle income country. Uh, so really, the, the, why it's called parasitic is there's really no acknowledgement of the, the players in the low middle income country setting. Uh, and that is why there is a concern around that because um, of course, uh, with the history of global health uh, and the implications of uh, the relationships between the uh, two um, uh, uh, parties or unequal partners, there's lots of concern when people are just coming doing research and, and not really acknowledging the local uh, researchers or uh, people who've contributed to the work um, in a significant and meaningful way. Yeah, this is very true. Uh, Shay, I'd like to ask you that disparities in authorship in global health research has been exhaustively discussed, and, but there has been little, very little perceptible change over time. So why do you think this is so? So yes, it's been exhaustively discussed, but I think I must mention that that exhaustively discussed part of it has been in the last three, four, five years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, we've not been discussing this very clearly, very loudly, very openly for a long time. But one of the things that the last few years have shown as well is that when you sort of map um, the, the trajectory of, of extent of parachute research over time, over the last 30, 40 years, um, those who have done the analysis, um, one thing you notice is that it hasn't changed much. Certainly hasn't changed almost at all in low-income countries. And when you look at the middle-income country part of it, it's changed. But what has changed really is the proportion of papers published by in-country authors using resources from the country. In other words, when, when you see the middle-income country part of it, of course, there's an increase in the proportion of, of manuscripts published by local authors. But when you remove those funded from within the country and just include uh, high-income country funded or supported or partnered studies, it hasn't changed as well. 
So there's, there's a stubborn persistence of the practice pretty much everywhere. Uh, and so for me, it's, it's important then to, to ask, you know, wh why has this thing remained so stubborn? And like I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of this has to do with norms um, in a field. And norms are stubborn. Norms don't just change without um, often concerted efforts trying to, to make, it, uh, make, make the change happen. So, so yes, I, I think it's, it's about norms. I also think very often it's about how we, how we approach the use of the ICMJ criteria. So for those who are not familiar, ICMJ is the International Committee of Medical General Editors. Um, the, the committee came up with the criteria for what, what defines an author in 1985, and it's been um, revised slightly ever since. But one of the issues with the way it's being used is that it's being used with a bias for exclusion rather than a bias for inclusion. Because the, the criteria themselves does not say exclude people. In fact, it says explicitly that this should not be used to exclude people. But I think the way that we, we are trained, the way that we learn to practice is to tilt towards exclusion. And so one of the things that I hope that this consensus statement, one of the things we discussed really well during the process, and that I hope this consensus statement does, is to shift that bias towards inclusion. Say, you know, what are the opportunities to include people here? Not what are the opportunities to exclude people here? Mm -hmm. And I hope that that, that is what it achieves. Very interesting perspective. Then uh, I'd like to ask you, you know, you have these consensus statements. Uh, what was the, how did you develop this? What was the process that you used to develop these consensus statements? Yeah. Um, so broadly, it was a very iterative process, but we had um, a series of three workshops, um, which is described in a paper with very detailed methodology section. Um, and so for the first workshop, really, um, we um, kind of came together, met as a group, as, as you need to do, um, and then kind of really importantly came up with the definitions. So we wanted to kind of really hammer down what we were talking about and um, develop a common language to understand um, each of us perspectives and then to develop the scope. So work package. Um, so the workshop one, um, we did that type of work. For the second work package, um, what we did was we came together and we thought through what the priority topics should be. Um, and then we kind of um, just, I think it's important to say this, that uh, this really, um, the idea of reflexivity statements really just build on um, work that Shay published uh, previously. And what we wanted to do at, the, at workshop two was to kind of think through what the preliminary um, structure should be for these statements and it just again um from what shay was saying we decided to follow the icmj criteria broadly for these and at that workshop we planned um four reviews um so we we, we did kind of four narrative uh, reviews in um, the topic areas um, having done that work for the final workshop we then presented those reviews uh, to each other within a group and we drafted the reflexivity statement. Um, and then obviously um, the, the manuscript started to take shape and we took feedback from independent experts and, um, uh, and here we are. Right, so quite an exhaustive uh, project, a lot of work. 
so in this uh, document, the role played by the journal is discussed and also emphasized. Now, how are journals positioned in terms of their uh, power within the global health research ecosystem and how do they influence it? Perhaps, Angela, you can uh, throw some light on this. Yeah, so thank you. Power is really central to this whole um, uh, discussion. As uh, um, Rafilawe said right at the beginning, it, you, when you have these uh, partnerships of inequality, you have to, in order to unpack what's going on, you have to understand power and how it works. And that was one of the themes that came up in the discussion is understanding how power works within the global health research ecosystem. And one of the things we had to do was actually come up with a definition of the global health research ecosystem. It was, we were quite surprised that that hadn't been completely exhaustively uh, defined and discussed. And, and we took, we were so surprised actually that we took extra steps to just double and triple check that we weren't missing anything. Um, and so, you know, we define, once you then define the ecosystem and see how other people have discussed it, it becomes very clear that um, up until now, the discussion has been very horizontal, you know, just listing who's in the ecosystem without really thinking about how power works and how, you know, how decisions are made, money flows, all of those things are, they flow along gradients of power and and, under, and it, for the purposes of this piece of work, what was really clear is that journals have this really critical role because academic authorship is one of the most vital, most highly prized currencies within <laughs> the academic system. You know, it can affect career progression, you know, the more you publish, the better you publish, the better able you are to get grant funding. Um, and as the gatekeepers, as the brokers of this incredibly valuable currency, journals have a lot of power. Um, and one of the things we want to do as part of this process is ask journals to use that power to try and make the system more fair. Um, uh, and just simply doing, you know, just simply asking the question, have you been fair in the conduct of this research? Have you been fair in sharing this very valuable currency? It is in itself a, a, a subversive act. It, it, it forces us to think about how power works. Um, you know, and we're really hopeful that this will make change and and. Ask all, you know, it's it's a call to everybody within this ecosystem to think about the power that they have and how they can use that power to make things more fair. I think you raise a very important issue about the power and also about the, uh, you know, all the stakeholders of the ecosystem asking the question, really, have you been fair? Yeah. And that comes to my next question with what you have in your article is the structured uh, reflexiv uh, reflexivity statements. Uh, very interesting. Can you tell us about it and what the aims of these uh, 15 questions are? So, the, as we said, as um, Shay has already uh, mentioned, you know, we're following the, um, broadly following the ICJME, I never get that acronym right, criteria. Uh, and 
at each stage. And those criteria are really useful because they take you through the processes of the conduct of research, you know, from conception, you know, through analysis, um, uh, writing it up, governance. Uh, And at each stage, you know, they're just simple, open-ended questions that ask, how have you taken the local context, the local actors, the contribution that they must have made because I think that's the other really central point is that, and, and Shay raised this in, in that really important article that he uh, published a little while ago, talking about the, the foreign gaze. If this research is going to be of value, then it must be of value to the local population. Um, and they are the ones who tell you what is valuable. So if this research is good, then it must have had some engagement um, from local researchers, lo- the local community. Um, and it, that engagement must have been of sufficient value to warrant authorship. It, 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 it's just a logic, it, it's just a simple statement of, of logic. For the work to be of quality, it must have drawn on local perspectives, local resources, local networks, local know-how, local infrastructure. And all of these things must be represented uh, within the authorship. And at each stage, you know, from conceptualization, management, acquisition of the data, interpretation, drafting, all of those perspectives from the local uh, environment where that data was collected, have to be represented if the research is any good. And if it isn't any good, you don't want to publish it anyway. So it just follows, it just must therefore follow that they must have been present, they must have been engaged. So if they were present and engaged in your research, why are they not in the why are they not in the authorship? Yeah. Is that is that fair? If you know if other people want to jump in I, to me, it's just so clear. Like it's it's a simple logical, it's just common sense, really. Right. Thanks, Angela. You raise a very important issue. And uh, what's very nice is you haven't just uh, given these structured reflexivity statements, but you've also given uh, tools for editors and uh, reviewers. And uh, can you tell us a little about the role of the editors and the reviewers, how they could use these tools? And um, uh, any of you can take that. Uh, yeah, uh, so Shay may want to uh, jump in. So what we wanted really to do was um, to be as transparent as possible. And when 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 we ask as journal editors an author to submit a reflexivity statement, then it's within their rights to understand how we're going to look at that statement and how how it's going to be assessed. And essentially, what's the bar? I think is the way, I, hopefully people won't take that view, but there will be people who say, well, what, what do I have to do in order to, to meet the criteria? And so being transparent about the way in which um, we will assess these reflexivity statements in order to close that loop, we felt was really important. And also one of the things we kind of, through the narrative reviews, we came to understand is that often, unfortunately, training editors isn't very strong um, and the way in which editors are appointed sometimes isn't um, on the basis of previous editorial experience shall we say and so we felt that this 
this additional tool would be useful um, for both the authors and the editors in order to, to more um, uh, to assess these statements in a standardized manner. Right. I'm just interested to know. So you've provided this tool for editors. And what if they use this tool and then they see that this paper, there is an equitable authorship. So what's the next step? Are they supposed to just, should they just reject the paper or should they make sure that the authorship is, uh, you know, uh, should they address this with the uh, authors? I mean, what do you do with this tool when you find that there is- Let uh, me jump in here. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, um, Again, it's informal practice already, at least in the journal that I edit, um, that, for example, peer reviewers will note um, either confidentially to the editor or to the author directly that what has happened with the authorship. So, so I, I get that question from reviewers frequently now. Um, mm -hmm. Why aren't local authors in this particular place? And sometimes the question is triggered um, when a local researcher reviews the work and the notes, for example, that, that they've gotten the context really wrong or that you couldn't make these assumptions, you couldn't make these statements if you had actually worked with local researchers and engaged with them properly. So, so there's already, again, that informal practice in place. Um, uh, and in many instances as well, if the manuscript comes in, one came in um, about four weeks ago, which was uh, an analysis of... Um, the early spread of COVID-19 in Africa um, in the first wave. And there was no African-based researcher on, on the byline. So I sent an email to the corresponding author asking, but what has happened here? Why aren't there any? I, I know that this is not possible. <laughs> there were no African collaborators. And, and they replied to me saying, well, they've been busy with the third wave and they haven't signed off on the manuscript, but there were five or so of them. And I said, well, wait for them, you know, the world is not going to end because this manuscript is not published in five weeks. And so a few days ago, I got the manuscript back with the full list of authors acknowledging the, the, all the right people. So, so again, this often this will just be questions, prodding. Um, uh, and also once they, if they had known, for example, that I would ask that question, th then they would have waited for those three, four more weeks. Right. So, so again, it, it's about norms in the field, ultimately. It's knowing that you'll be asked and so preemptively changing your behavior, you know, uh, ahead of ahead of time. So that's very interesting you say that, that editor would actually write to the authors and ask them why this is so, and also try to, you know, make a change if possible. Uh, just an extension to that question, you know, it's, it's quite a challenge for editors of journals because you've got to maintain the impact uh, of the journal and it's always nice to have, uh, you know, um, authors uh, which are very reputed authors. Uh, so this becomes a challenge when you're trying to, um, you know, ensure equitable authorship. So how do you, uh, you know, how can, how, it's very challenging for the editors of journals uh, when they're trying to, you know, keep up the impact. So how do you think uh, journals and editors could, uh, you know, maintain this balance Anyone can take that. So uh, one, I wanted to come in a little bit and yeah. invite Shay to expand on some of the recommendations that we make in the, um, in the paper, because this was something, this business about the, the challenges that local authors face in creating time to just write, um, yeah. you know, cre creating, you know, internet access, all of these things that become excuses for exclusion. 
you know, and Shay thought a lot about this. And that was that was one of the things that drove some of the recommendations that we came, you know, that the experiences across, you know, all, all the editors and, and, and just the point that you make about the norms, changing those norms, you know, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I think we need to have a discussion about what, um, what those limits are, you know, WhatsApp, people making comments by WhatsApp, they don't have to do the typing. They, you know, you can catch somebody on the phone, you know, that there are, we can be creative um, in order to promote um, inclusion. And one of the other norms that we have already as part of this process had to push is the limits on the number of authors. Why not share authorship? You know, Rafina and Ben are joint, you know, first authors on this paper. You know, I'm a joint senior author with Ndeki and Shay. You know, we what there's why not? What 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 why do we have to have those limits? Um, because we all contributed. Shay, you know, do you want to expand on that? No, it just goes to the question of norms again. So the, the, a lot of this is about norms, just things that have always been done and so yeah. shall always be done kind of situation. But, but, you know, once you just examine them, you realize that there's no good reason for doing them that way. Um, and, and the question is, you know, how should we move and, and, and let us move um, from them? A, a good point about um, the, the authorship criteria. Um, so, so there are four criteria just to go through them quickly. Yeah. The first one has to do with, you know, crafting the research question, obtaining the data, analyzing the data, some interpretation and doing analysis, criteria one. Again, once you think about how you might set up a, an international research partnership, you know that it's, it's almost impossible that, that there aren't local authors or local researchers who, who fulfill criterion one. And so criterion two then is writing or, or revising the manuscript. So, so once there are many local authors who fulfill criterion one, for criterion two, it's, it's not about invitation by those who are leading the, the, the partnership. It's, it's a question of, it's a choice. Mm -hmm. So often people present it as if um, uh, it wasn't a choice that they didn't make the decision to invite some people and not invite others. So it's a choice to invite people. And when you invite people, there are a diverse array of ways in which people could contribute. It could be, as, as Angela said, it could be putting pens, but it could also be discussing the data on a Zoom call like this. Um, discussing the data, analyzing the data together, interpreting the data, making sense of it. Um, and, and someone could then record and go and type up or, or even just type up on the spot. You, you don't necessarily have to write to, to make intellectual contribution to the writing of the manuscript. And then the third stage is signing off on the, on, the final, on the final document. Again, at the example I gave just now, sometimes it's just a matter of time. People get busy. Often local researchers have many more things they are doing compared to sort of high-income country researchers who have really well-protected positions sometimes, or at least, you know, uh, more secure jobs or, or less uh, implementation commitments or all those sort of things that then distract people. So if, again, creating the time, also creating online avenues for signing off, right? Mm -hmm. you, you could sign off in a Zoom meeting, you could sign off, you know, by email. There are other ways of signing off. Um, and then the fourth point, the fourth criterion, is uh, about the willingness of the researcher to say, I, I'm happy to answer questions. Should any questions about the integrity 
questions work arise. Again, if you fulfill criteria one, two, three, it's it's you know it, it, it's unlikely that you can't fulfill mm-hmm. criteria four. So all of these things sit on, on top of each other, and there are choices people make along the chain of this authorship process that determine whether people are able to fulfill it. So the question is, you know, let's be deliberate about being inclusive in those choices. Right. Thank you, Shay. You make some very important points. Uh, I want to ask you, Refue, that uh, you know, limited training opportunities are there in uh, low and middle income settings. And this can, of course, uh, uh, impact on the researcher's capable capacity to do uh, for authorship and also for career advance, uh, advancement. So do you think that just um, ensuring uh, equity of contribution can help resolve the current imbalance that we have uh, of power and opportunity? Um, absolutely, Sheila. I think, as you've just said, um, you know, access is also about opportunity. And if people are offered opportunities to participate, to be part of the process, to learn through the process, all of us started somewhere. Nobody uh, came to this earth being a senior professor. It's a process of learning through mentorship, through other individuals in the team, through collaboration with other individuals. And if you're given the opportunity to participate, you will, you will all get, be in the same space. Um, and I think the other important thing, uh, which is also part of those uh, questions that we asked the, 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 the authors, is around um, capacity uh, strengthening in the low, low middle income country setting. Because one of the biggest challenges is it's not only around finances, it's around the research management uh, systems uh, which may be weaker, um, those are what guarantee success in research and protect your time as a, as a researcher. So the whole uh, infrastructure around the, the human resources, the capacity of and, and, and including early career researchers in, in the research team, as well as other disadvantaged uh, individuals, uh, women, it, that those are important. Unless people are included, they take on onto the train, they will never get there. So I think it's quite important that that um, uh, capacity strengthening is built into the to the process because that's the only way we will uh, redress these imbalances. I agree with you completely, uh, Ben and Angela. What are the limitations uh, of this uh, this uh, document, and what are the next steps? Um, so the the main limitation I think um, is, of this is that it's the first step. Okay, our our hope is that um, people will take this on board um, and through taking it on board and as hopefully reflexivity statements accrue, um, other ways in which equitable partnership can be promoted will become more apparent. And that this um, first stab at a, a kind of a guidance can be improved upon and can be refined and can um, can in, indeed kind of act as a, as a a resource for research in order to to promote equitable partnerships. So I think it's it's the first step, and we wanted to to do this knowing that it's not going to be perfect, um, that there isn't a a strong model for what reflexivity statements should look like. We've obviously pushed, published a reflexivity statement of our own with this manuscript, which is important, um, and hopefully might act as some kind of guidance for other authors. Um, but journals are going to have to put up um, uh, kind of um, reflexivity statements, examples, um, and what and try to 
define what they expect. And so it's going to be a process. Um, but hopefully it's 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 the foundations for for a change. And I think what we'll end up with is is learning and discussion. So, you know, as this first, we, we've got a little bit of funding to to try and engage with this learning, try and gather data. There'll be learning from the researchers in terms of, you know, the challenge of this. I, you know, research is a very admin, uh, admin heavy, bureaucracy heavy business. So another form to fill, people will, you know, there will be people who will roll their eyes um, um, at that. But I think this is so important, um, making sure that we systematically have partnerships thinking about fairness from inception in the same way that people know they're going to be asked for an ethics form, you know, right, right. ethical approval at the point of publication that has people get their ethics because they know they need it. And, and people think about the ethics from the, from the beginning and all over the world, research is more ethical and, and safer because of that requirement. And hopefully all over the world, as hopefully as more journals, as more researchers, more institutions commit to engaging with this process, partnerships will become more fair all over the world. Um, and we will learn, you know, there will be example, exemplars of really good practice in uh, capacity strengthening, really good practice in supporting early career researchers, really good practice in making sure the women and the minorities who have contributed to this research are fairly um, recognized. And we'll all learn, um, that's what we hope. So you're saying like you have a conflict of interest uh, document that journals give you in the same way you would have something to declare that there has been equitable authorship. So that was probably the way forward. Very interesting. So I just want to ask you, Shay, that apart from ensuring equitable authorship, how else should equitable uh, international partnerships be promoted? Yes, so, so thank you very much. That's a question um, that's very much about um, the, the uh, research ecosystem that Angela described. So, so there are many other actors in this ecosystem and each of the actors could change their practices and their behavior to enhance equitable partnership. Right? A very good big player is uh, funders. Right? Mm. So, so very often implicit in, in how a funding call is made. If you read a funding call for, for application, you could pretty much detect some of the reasons why there is parachute research. Right? So for example, they assume that whoever is applying is based in a high-income country, or they even explicitly say, state that it should be based in a high-income country, right? So, so that, that's one of, often one of the problems. Another is, is, uh, is uh, an assumption that the person already knows the question they want to ask very mm. specifically. Mm. Um, so, so often there's no space within that call to say, you know, consult or tell us about your consultation process, or tell us where your research ideas came from. So all of those kinds of questions and all of those kinds of assumptions that are written into funding application calls themselves already bias the ecosystem mm -hmm. for helicopter slash parachute research. So, so they, they could play quite a big role. I've had people comment, and I really appreciate this about the, um, about the consensus statements, that one of the things it does is, as well is to empower 
um, um, researchers in lower middle income countries yeah. to ask these questions, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To say, you know, here is what is expected of you at the point of publication. How are you, what are you doing to ensure that this process is fair? Mm -hmm. Again, it goes back to the question of norms. If once the norms change, norms change by essentially enabling certain mm -hmm. questions to be asked, mm -hmm. certain practices to be enacted without even thinking, right? Because it now becomes a new thing. So, so the, the hope is that you know there are other actors in this ecosystem who, who, who could and should change their practice as, as part of this process of ensuring equitable partnerships, but also this statement um, could be a, a, a big contributor to that process. Of, of changing those practices, given that when you understand that this happens at the end of the line, then you start to change, hopefully, and people start to ask the right questions. Right? So I'm expecting, for example, someone to ask a funder that, you know, here's what I'm supposed to do at the end of my process, and you're forcing me into a position that doesn't allow me to do that. Mm -hmm. So, so th those kinds of conversations, I hope, are triggered and different actors can, and can behave differently. Thank you so much, Shay. We've had a really interesting discussion. I've learned a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. I wish to congratulate uh, all the authors for uh, addressing this very important issue. And I think, uh, as Ben has rightly described, this is indeed uh, a first step. And I'm sure that this will pave the way to a lot of discussion uh, and uh, debate. And, uh, you know, and it will certainly highlight this very neglected issue, not only among uh, editors and journals, but also among public health authorities, research funders, uh, you know, and researchers, both in uh, uh, low-income countries and high-income countries. So I wish to thank all the authors and uh, the listeners and anesthesia. And also, I'd also like to say that this paper uh, is available for a free download on the uh, journal website. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. much. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>